Good, you can hear me. We are doing a prophecy book, but I don't want to have to yell the entire time. Uh, Let me begin by saying something you probably have never heard in church before. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Obadiah? It is probably about halfway through the book. You'll find it between Amos and Jonah. And this one-chapter book often gets overlooked. In fact, I don't think you're going to find it printed on coffee cups anywhere. You probably aren't going to find a scrolly passage with flowers on the background in your Instagram feeds. Um, But also, it's not that well-known even in the Reformed tradition. Uh, There are no references to the book of Obadiah in the proof texts of the Westminster Standards. Uh, There are no references to it in the Trinity Hymnal. And I found one citation of it in Calvin's Institutes. Uh, So while you're turning there, let me just briefly give an introduction on what we're doing over the next few weeks. Uh, Back in the spring, Chris and I were discussing what are we going to do when we wrap up Hebrews. We know we're headed towards Luke eventually, and providentially it turned out we had about five weeks to fill, and there are five one-chapter books in the canon. And so we decided, let's do a series on the one-chapter books. So each of the next five Sundays, we'll spend one night in each of these books. And so tonight we'll begin with the only one that's in the Old Testament. It is the most minor of the minor prophets. It's Obadiah. But as we'll see, I hope we'll see, good things come in small packages. And this book is actually a microcosm, I think, of the entire message of the Old Testament prophets. So if you want the sermon in a sentence, here it is. The Lord is coming to bring salvation by bringing destruction to his enemies and deliverance to his people. So as we turn our attention to how the Lord has spoken through this prophet, let's ask for his help in hearing, believing, and obeying his word. Let's pray. Lord, let us keep your word in mind and meditate on it day and night, standing firm, watching, and praying. Give us real knowledge of what we read and hear. Show us uh, not only how to understand it, but how to live it, so that we might live in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we look at the prophecy that Obadiah has written down, I've broken it up into five headings. You'll find the outline in the back of the bulletin if you want to follow along. And it goes like this. The Lord's delegate, verse 1. The Lord's decree, verses 2 through 9. The Lord's denouncement, verses 10 through 14. The Lord's day, verses 15 through 18. And the Lord's dominion, verses 19 through 21. So let's look first to verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. And as we begin, we probably have several questions. So I think the first question is, who? Who is Obadiah? And the short answer is, we don't exactly know. Obadiah was a common Old Testament name. There are at least 13 Obadiahs and six Obeds, and the author of this book could be one of them, could be another man named Obadiah, or Obadiah could actually be a pen name, because Obadiah means the servant of Yahweh. And what we see, though, is that's the most important thing we need to know. The only information we're given about Obadiah is his name, and he is a servant of the Lord. However, we do see seven times in these 21 verses the covenant name of the Lord. Five of those are the Lord speaking. So what matters when we look at Obadiah is not 
who the servant is, but the message that's been given to the servant. Because this delegate faithfully delivers the message that God has given him for the good of the God's covenant people. So a second question we may have is where? Where is Edom that's being addressed? Uh, in Genesis chapter 25, we learn that Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red, and it was a nickname of Esau. It was used to refer uh, to his red appearance, but also for the red stew that was made by his brother Jacob, and he sold his birthright for it. That name, Edom, is then given to a kingdom that's built by his descendants. This kingdom was southeast of Israel, found between the Dead Sea at the north and the Red Sea at the south. And you can find in Genesis 36 a list of the genealogy of the nation of Edom. The land of Edom actually marked the southeast border of the land that was promised to the nation of Israel in Numbers 34. And its major landmarks, that'll be important as we read through this book, are the rock fortress Selah, which is known today as Petra. You may have seen pictures of it. A mountain called Mount Seir or Mount Esau and a city called Teman, which was actually named after one of the early chieftains of Edom. But what we do need to know is, like the brothers that gave their names to the two nations, Edom and Israel had a contentious relationship. It started when, when Moses led the people out of Egypt. The king of Edom wouldn't even let the Israelites pass through the land. As early as Numbers chapter 24, we actually read God prophesying through Balaam that Israel would one day dispossess the land of Edom. David conquered Edom, but they would eventually revolt against his descendant, King Jehoram of Judah, about 100 years afterwards, and then they would invade Judah again during the reign of King Ahaz. Before Jacob and Esau were born, God gave this prophecy to their mother. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And then the Lord expands on this word in Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not, Jacob, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated." So this reality played out in history. Israel and Edom were constantly at odds, and Obadiah's word is actually declaring the final judgment that will come against this land of Edom. By the rise of the Roman Empire, and in fact by AD 70, the Edomites disappear as a power, and uh, the majority of the people were incorporated into the Jewish state or to other surrounding states. The, the prophecy that Obadiah gives here has come true. So next, we might wonder what. What is the message? And as we work through the text, we'll see that it's a pronouncement of judgment against Edom. The Lord will first lay out his case as to what the punishment is that's coming. Then he'll lay out his case as to why Edom deserved this punishment. And then he'll show what the fate of his people will be when this judgment is executed. The judgment is bad news for Edom, but it's good news for the people of God. And that's because salvation always comes with destruction and deliverance going hand in hand. This is how it's always been since the fall. Another question we may have is when. When was the book written? And it's another mystery. We don't know exactly when the book was written. 
It was written sometime after Edom had risen up against Jerusalem the first time and probably before Jerusalem fell to Babylon and Judah was taken into captivity. The Babylonian conquest is actually what's described in verses 10 through 14. We know Jeremiah 49 actually has a very similar prophecy. Some of it's even word for word the same, but we don't know whether that was written at the same time. What we do know is that this prophecy has lasting truth that God's people, that we, can glean even today. This is because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is living and active, even millennia after it was first delivered, because it's the Spirit of God that speaks through His word to bring judgment and deliverance. And the last question, why? Why this message? While the message is addressed to Edom, and it gives warning to him as a nation, the purpose is actually to give comfort to the people of God. God is not warning Edom so much as he's giving Judah a peek into what lies ahead for their enemies. Judah would go into exile in Babylon as judgment for their own sins, and Edom would pillage what was left behind and rejoice in their downfall. So the Lord sends Obadiah to comfort his covenant people by declaring he will not let the injustices done against them go unpunished. The Lord repeatedly uses his own name, the one by which he's made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And each time that name is spoken in this prophecy, it's a reminder that for Judah, they have a covenant Lord who will not abandon them, regardless of what their circumstances look like, and who will fight for them against all of their enemies. So as we look at this prophecy itself, let us remember, when we hear from this word, we hear the voice of God. Even these 250 Hebrew words from an anonymous source spoken thousands of years ago to a distressed and broken country are more important than libraries of books, because these are the words of God. So we have the Lord's delegate, Now let's look at the message that he speaks, beginning with the Lord's decree. Obadiah begins with God as a judge. He's pronouncing the sentence for Edom's crimes. First, he's going to humble them for their pride. Consider verses 2 through 4. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Notice first the irony that happens here in verse 2. Edom is going to be made small among, among the nations. Have you ever been around those people that they're just so desperate to be accepted that they will do or say anything that they think will get them in the good graces of other people? They actually come off kind of pathetic. Everyone looks at them with disdain because that insecurity and that weakness actually turns people off and turns them away. And the Lord is saying, that's what's going to happen here with Edom. The word despised here actually is the same word that's used for Esau's attitude when he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. So in the same way that his father disdained his birthright, This worthless kingdom, Edom, who 
fancied himself a powerful and important kingdom, will be seen as the lowest of all the nations. But for a moment, Edom has tasted power and money and security, and he's grown proud. Pride is among the most consistently denounced sins all throughout Scripture, and in part because it's the most foolish. It's among the things that the Lord hates. It goes before destruction. It's something that can cause God to actively oppose a person. And we see in Edom a parable of the human heart. Edom, who dwells in the mountains, literally above all the other nations, feels invincible. Who, who can get to me way up here, soaring among the stars, he asks. And if it was a movie, that would be foreshadowing, right? We would know exactly what was coming. Who will bring me down? How about the one who formed the mountains? The one who, who hung those stars in space? The one who uses the mountain fortress as his footstool? That's who. That's who will bring you down. Maybe the only figure that's more pitiful than that person dying for acceptance is the arrogant person that has no reason to be. Um, you, you know the type, the trash talker on the pickup basketball court who can't hit a jumper, or the manager at work who brags about her performance but only stays afloat because her team works overtime to compensate for her weakness, or the college sophomore who took his first philosophy class and now he knows enough to turn his back on everything that he's learned before. Or that couple pregnant with their first baby who can't wait till their little bundle of joy comes so they can show their parents of five grown children what real child rearing should look like. Guilty. That's the image here of Edom. They woke up on third base thinking they hit a triple and their insufferableness is about to catch up to them. But before we get ahead of ourselves condemning others, don't we see the exact image of ourselves when we grow proud? So what is it that gets your nose a little higher in the air? That gets your chest puffed out a little more? Is it your education? Your family? Job? Money? Self-discipline or morality? Dare I say in a Reformed church, your correct doctrine? What of any of this can you attribute solely to your innate ability or your goodness, or your intellect. What do any of us have that is not a gift directly from God through his providence? But when we take pride in the gift as if we were the source rather than just the mere recipients, we teeter like Edom on the edge of the cliff ready for a fall at any moment. So let us learn from their example. And instead of being proud, let us give thanks to the Lord in humility for his kindness towards us. Pride is not only foolish, it's dangerous. Second, the judgment of, this, the, judgment of the Lord will be thorough. It's described in verses 5 and 6. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. When the Lord sets himself against someone, the consequences are worse than any other person could possibly enact. If thieves come, they only steal what they can carry out. When harvesters work a field, there's always fruit 
left behind. But when the Lord executes judgment, no stone is unturned. This should first, it should put in us a healthy fear of the Lord so that we turn away from those things that bring his judgment. We should seek to avoid this judgment by fleeing those sins in faith and repentance. But second, just practically speaking, it gives us really good motivation to obey Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When God avenges, he doesn't merely bring the little pain and annoyance that we could inflict. Instead, he brings complete and total justice. This should give us confidence to never take matters into our own hands, but to trust the judge of the earth to do right. And third, the thoroughness of this judgment actually ought to bring us peace and assurance. And you say, how? How can the thoroughness of judgment assure me? And here's why. Because when the Lord brings judgment, there is nothing left to punish or to take. So when Jesus bore your sins and mine, it's not as if plunderers came and took only what they could carry. It's not as if harvesters were leaving behind little bits of judgment and wrath that we might have to face again someday. No, because God executes complete and total judgment, we know that Jesus has borne every last drop of the wrath of God on our behalf. When we look to faith in Christ for salvation, we can be assured he has fully atoned for us and we receive only blessing from the hand of his Father. The third thing we see in the Lord's decree is that the Lord will turn Edom's own allies against him. Verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Again, the Lord turns Edom's confidence on its head. Edom allied himself with the enemies of the people of God, all of those that are powerful in the world's eyes. In this, Edom was a living example of James 4.4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And just like Edom... When we compromise with the world's wisdom or the world's system or the world's methods to gain or keep power or prestige or possessions or even to bring about seemingly good things like peace and justice, we are setting ourselves against God. And just like Edom, those unholy alliances will be our downfall. Edom lived by the sword in seeing Israel brought down. And now they're going to die by the same sword. When we seek peace by aligning with wicked men, we're only delaying the inevitable when they turn on us. It would have been better for Edom, and it's better for us to learn from Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It would be better for Edom, would have been better for Edom, it would be better for us to await the peace that lasts forever because the Lord establishes it. Last, verses 8 and 9 underscore the totality of this judgment and that the Lord is the primary agent that brings it about. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. 
when Assyria and Babylon conquered Israel and Judah, they at least took the healthy and the wise and the strong and they educated them. They at least left a remnant in the land. They left the possibility of restoration. But not so with Edom. Their wise men will be destroyed. Their strong men slaughtered. And it's the Lord himself who carries out this judgment. Edom would never again rise as a kingdom. Its identity was absorbed into the surrounding nations. This is because the Lord of Israel is the Lord of the nations and is the Lord of history. And what he says he will do, he will do. So I think we have at least two takeaways from the Lord's decree here. First, God alone has the right to define and to set the penalty for sin. And he actually makes it appropriate to the sin committed. Pride will be met with humiliation. Plunder and ill-gotten gain will be met with destitution. Fellowship with treacherous allies will result in betrayal. This means we should be done with any of our petty spats or our ultimatums or our calls for restitution on our own terms or our demands that justice be carried out in the way and the timing that we see fit. Instead, we are to boldly bear witness to the truth and justice God demands with our words and our lives, but leave the execution of that judgment to the only one who has the power to carry it out thoroughly and trust the means that he has given to execute that justice. We will not see true justice fully brought until the great day of the Lord. So we should wait with patience for that day, knowing that the one who loves his people enough to bear their punishment will surely and perfectly avenge the wrongs done to them. And second, if we want to avoid the judgment that Edom received, we must avoid the traps that Edom fell into. We must put away our pride. We must recognize our humble position before God. We must refuse to curry favor with the world and attempt to build ourselves up by compromising with the enemies of the Lord. We must instead look in faith to Christ, confessing our sins, trusting Him to build His kingdom through the proclamation of His law and His gospel. So the judge has set the sentence. This is a little backwards from how we would expect it, but now we need to know what are the crimes. First, Edom failed to defend Judah. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Edom didn't initially join in with those attacking Jerusalem, but that does not absolve them of guilt. The moral law is binding on them, including the prohibition to murder. The Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 135 and 136, teach about this command. The command, thou shalt not murder, first requires preserving the life of ourselves and of others, and just defense against violence. And this command forbids the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. So when God's people were attacked, a line was drawn in the sand, and Edom stood aloof on the side opposite Jacob, aligning themselves with God's enemies and watching as God's people suffered violence. But 
mere inaction is not what brings God's anger. In verses 12 through 14, the Lord shows Edom's treachery is even worse given their relation and attitude toward the people of Judah. Like Cain, Edom failed to be his brother's keeper. And so in the form of warnings, the Lord passes judgment for how Edom betrayed his cousins. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Edom would see and take the opportunity to gain at the expense of his very own kindred. As Moses prepared the people to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy, the Lord demanded that his people treat the Edomites kindly. And this good was repaid by Edom with evil over and over again throughout the years. After centuries of squabbling, Judah is finally taken away, and Edom responds by gloating and rejoicing and boasting at the humiliation and the grief of their brothers. Israel didn't take the land of Edom in conquest, but the Edomites had the audacity to enter the gates of Yahweh's people, to loot their wealth, and even intercept the fugitives and hand them over to their pursuers. Notice the progression of sin. First, Edom's heart rejoices in evil. And then, their feet enter where they don't belong, and their hands take what doesn't belong to them. And then finally, they act violently against Judah. Sin, when it takes root in our hearts, will always work itself out if it's left unchecked. And it will continue to grow worse and worse until it's finally stopped. Edom should have known better than to commit these atrocities, but carried them out anyway. And for all that, the Lord, the judge, will bring judgment upon Edom. So a couple of points here to carry with us. First, the Lord takes personally the wrong done to his people. Kids, remember the children's sermon? Talked about how you would feel hurt when your friend or your sibling was hurt by someone else? Even though it wasn't done to you. The Lord is saying the same thing here about what Edom did to Judah. But it's even more than that. In fact, it's more like a marriage. Married folks, why do we get upset when our spouse is treated unjustly? And the correct answer is not because that's my job. It's because they're one flesh with you. What is done to them is just like it's done to you. And we see this same thing from the Lord Jesus. Places like Matthew 25. As you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Or when he confronted Saul on his way to Damascus in Acts, the question wasn't, why are you persecuting my church? It was, why are you persecuting me? The Lord takes what is done to his people personally, and he has the right and the power to avenge. So we should be very careful about how we speak and act towards his bride. How we treat one another reveals how we truly think about and treat Christ. But on the flip side, when we see the church mistreated or we are mistreated because we belong to him, 
we can take solace that he is seeing and identifying with his people, and he will avenge them. And second, in a very real sense, Jesus did identify with the suffering of his people. So much so that he took that suffering on on our behalf. On the day of his misfortune, the Pharisees gloated. On the day of his ruin, the bystanders rejoiced. On the day of his distress, the mocking boast, king of the Jews, hung over his head. On the day of his calamity, he lost everything he had, hanging naked and exposed. He was cut off. The soldiers cast lots for what belonged to him. He did all of this so that the just wrath of God would never be poured out on us. He is gentle and lowly, and we can come to him in faith, not only to find forgiveness of sins in the perfect substitute, but to find comfort in our time of need in our sympathetic high priest who is made like us in every way. And third, we should be very careful about our attitude towards others' downfall. After all, Judah was conquered and exiled by Babylon as judgment for their own sins. What happened to them, God told them would happen, and it was just and right. The problem is, Edom didn't rejoice to see the vindication of the righteousness of God. They rejoiced because they harbored bitterness and hatred toward the people of God. When we see those who flaunt the law of God, especially those who bear the name of God, when we see them brought low, there is a way we may properly rejoice if we're motivated by love for the Lord and His glory. In fact, we saw that in our New Testament reading in Revelation. However, we should be very careful that we are not instead gloating to see our enemies get their comeuppance. In verses 10 through 14, the word day is used 10 times. And Edom rejoices over this day, but this day is not about Edom. This is the day for Judah and their relationship to the Lord. So when we see others reaping what they have sown, let us have humble hearts and remember that this is between them and the Lord. And there but for the grace of God go every single one of us. But that day for Judah is not the only day, nor is it the most important day. Because the judgment here in Obadiah isn't even limited to Edom. The covenant God of Israel is the creator and the judge over the whole earth. And he will will repay every evil deed in equal measure. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. The God of Judah is making a claim that no other ancient Near Eastern God, indeed no other being, can make. He will judge all the nations. And for the remainder of the book, the prophecy is more like a telescope, moving beyond just what would happen with Edom and Israel and Judah, and instead looking to that great day at the end of time. On that day, all the nations will be judged. They will all be repaid for their sins. Edom was singled out for Obadiah, but they're not special. The fate that awaits them also awaits all of the enemies of God and his people. 
Just like Edom, this judgment's going to be a reversal of their misdeeds. The nations drank in victory on the mountain of the Lord, so he will make them to drink his wrath continually. And like the judgment pronounced on Edom, this judgment is exhaustive. So great is the vengeance of the Lord, it will be like these evil peoples have never even existed. And I know a lot of this is really uncomfortable for American evangelicals. We don't like talking about the judgment of God. But what we need to understand is, if we want Jesus, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and rose again from the dead, if we want the forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting, we must have the Jesus who ascended to the right hand of his Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. That is the Jesus who brings salvation. and He brings salvation through judgment. That is how he has decided to do it, and that's how he has shown us grace. On the flip side, some of us also may be really comfortable with seeing the judgment of God, and for us it's really important that we understand who the true enemies of God are. Unlike under the old covenant, God's people under the gospel are not a nation, and the enemies of his church are not primarily kingdoms in this world. Make no mistake, there have been and there will continue to be governments that align themselves with Satan and persecute the church. And the Lord will judge them. But we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Our opposition is far more sinister. As God's people, our greatest threat is not those who live in a different country. It's not those who have a different opinion than us. It's not those who vote differently than us. Our greatest enemies are our own sin and the death and destruction that it brings and the power of the devil. And these things have already met their defeat in the crucifixion of Jesus. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Because the day of the Lord is not only a day for destruction. For the people of God, it's a day of deliverance. Through the destruction of his enemies, the Lord saves and preserves his people. Verse 17 says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. In his commentary, Jeffrey Niehaus says of this passage, God's people will now receive what was once theirs. It was lost through disobedience, but regained through grace. This follows the archetypal pattern of salvation history. What was lost through Adam is regained through Christ. To the Jews in exile, just hearing about the destruction of their enemies would likely ring hollow. What good does it do that Edom falls while we're stuck here in a foreign land? But the greater comfort comes. When Mount Seir falls, Mount Zion in Jerusalem will stand. The holy mountain of the Lord will once again be the place where the Lord dwells with his people. And they can be assured because he has spoken. And they had no right to return to the land. Their suffering didn't atone for their sins. They didn't put God in their debt to return what he had rightfully taken from them. 
Yet in his mercy, he keeps his covenant promise to Abraham. And so he restores his people to their place of fellowship with him in the land. Just like us, the deliverance of Judah was based solely on the mercy of God. And it goes hand in hand with the judgment of his enemies. And this grace is found fully in Jesus Christ. The enemies of the Lord will drink the wrath of God's judgment without end. But even enemies can be made the people of God. And the people of the Lord are forgiven because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. So briefly, let's look at the final three verses. When God restores his people, he not only fulfills his promises, but he will expand them. He's going to bring his sheep, no matter how far they're scattered, he's going to bring them home and place them in the safety of his kingdom forever. He will establish peace as he rules over all the nations of the earth. That's the point of this final passage, verse 19. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The Lord reiterates the bounds of Israel. All of the kingdom will be restored to the people of God. All these places in this passage, all these places named, they outline the physical boundaries of the kingdom that was promised to Israel, the kingdom that was conquered by David. We see the judgment of God on his enemies will be complete and total, but in the same way, the restoration of his people will be complete and total. His people will occupy every inch of the land promised to them. But what's more, this kingdom overflows and expands. It begins to fill the whole earth, just as the original intention for man was in the garden. The mountain of Esau will be put under subjection to the mountain of Yahweh. What's new here is that the kingdom doesn't merely belong to the people of Israel. The saviors go out, but the dominion belongs to the Lord. He will rule over all kingdoms. So this last prophecy can't refer merely to the Jews being brought back to a physical land after exile. That's only a foretaste of what God is going to do. To fully see its final fulfillment, we need to look at the end of the book. Revelation 11, we see an angel blow a trumpet and the cry goes out, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The ultimate message of Obadiah is the message of the kingship of Jesus Christ. He is reigning from heaven now over all kings and kingdoms, and he will return to consummate his kingdom on the earth. The promise of the Lord is not merely a fiefdom in the Middle East. It's a dominion that encompasses all of creation. As we look to that day, we don't seek to transform these kingdoms into the kingdom of Christ. We don't renounce our citizenship in Christ's kingdom to live in these kingdoms. And we don't submit to another law here that contradicts the Lord's commandments. But instead, we obey the laws of our great king. And we wait expectantly for the day he will fully restore his people on the earth. So, 
there we have Obadiah. A vivid reminder that the Lord is a judge who will bring destruction on his enemies and deliverance to his people. So I'm going to leave us with two quick appeals as we close. First, we should live as if God would ju- will judge the earth according to his law because he will. Your sin and mine will be judged fully and finally. The only question is whether we will bear that judgment ourselves or whether we will receive salvation through faith by Christ bearing it for us. May we never lose sight of the coming judgment. And may that give us urgency to proclaim the bad news of destruction and the good news of deliverance, both found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And may we remain faithful to his calling to be a royal priesthood and pursue holiness and the power of his Holy Spirit as he has taught us in his word. And two, when we are weary of our sin, both ours and others, when we're tired of the effects of the fall, when we're mistreated, when we're distressed, when our hearts cry out, how long, O Lord, may we never give up. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, may we be comforted by the promise of Obadiah, which I think is summed up beautifully in Hebrews chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Will you pray with me?